So um, this week, and it wasn't just for a sermon illustration, but this week I ate at one of my favorite restaurants, which is Malio's. Um, it's downtown right across the street from my office, so I can't afford to eat there for dinner, but lunch is cheaper, and so it's in that Sykes building, the, the beer can building as it's called, and it's, got, it's this steakhouse, it's been around forever, I think it was on Dale Mabry at one time, and it moved to the Sykes building, but um, my favorite thing on the menu at lunch anyway is the steak sandwich. All right, I took a picture, I looked like an idiot when I was doing it, but, um, or a 12-year-old with Instagram, but I took a picture of of the steak sandwich, but the thing that makes it so good, oddly, is not the steak, it's the bread. Okay, and this bread, I don't know what they do to this bread, or what they put in this bread, but it is the best bread I've ever had, it's amazing. And before the meal, they bring out the exact same bread in these baskets to the table, and one thing leads to another, and before you know it, you've consumed three loaves of bread before your meal even comes, and some of you don't like bread, and you just don't like it because you're healthy, and you know, you know you really like bread, <laughs> all right? You're just like, oh, I don't eat bread, you know, it's, you like bread, all right? Now, admittedly, I have a bread problem. I love bread. Courtney, on the other hand, recently found out she has a gluten allergy. <laughs> I'm really not laughing, <laughs> My wife has a gluten allergy, so she can't eat bread, because that's one of the main ingredients, I guess. I don't fully understand it. I'm just glad I don't have it. Um, But I asked her anyway. I said, well, what is your, the best bread you've ever had in your entire life? Where would that be? And she said, sourdough bread in San Francisco. All right. I don't remember it, but I'm sure it was good. Um, How many of you like sourdough bread? I should have asked how many of you don't, but... um, and here's the, here's the crazy thing about bread just in general. It's so simple. You know, I've watched Courtney cook bread before. The number of ingredients are, I mean, it's just, it's such a simple thing to do, but yet it's so good. And it's worldwide. All right, Jake informed me they don't have bread in China, but let's just say it's worldwide. All right, <laughs> everywhere you go, there's bread and you can get bread. All right, it's great. Everybody loves it. And last week in John chapter 6, as we just read, Jesus took five loaves and two fish, and he miraculously fed 20,000 people. All right, it was the feeding of the 5,000, but that was just men. There was probably 20,000 people that he fed. So if you just stop and think about that for a second, he fed 20,000 people. All right, that'd be, that's like Amelie Arena. Give or take, I don't think that quite holds that many, so maybe even more than Emily Arena. So that would be like going to the very top during the lightning game, having a sandwich with you, going to the very top 300 section at the very top row in Emily Arena, and walking over and giving somebody a sandwich, and saying, okay, I want you to eat as much of this as you possibly can, and then pass it down. All right, forget the germs and all that for a second. Just pretend that you really did that. So you pass it down, it makes its way all the way around the 300 section and then goes to what's like the club level and then goes all the way down. And by the time it gets down to the ice, not only is there still some of the sandwich left, but you've got 12 baskets of leftovers. Okay, that's, that's the magnitude of what Jesus did, just did. It sounds absurd, but that's, that's the miracle that he just performed. And this was good bread. I didn't need it, but he didn't, I promise you, he didn't multiply rubbish. Okay, this was a fresh loaf of bread from Malio's. This was, you know, this was a baguette from the streets of Paris. This was sourdough bread from San Francisco. I'm making myself hungry. Um, I realize I have a problem. I really do love bread. But here's the thing. The people in John chapter 6, they're obsessed with bread too, but not for the right reason. 
Okay, what we're going to read is they are obsessed with just the bread. They missed the miracle, they missed Jesus, and all they want is more bread. Okay, he just did something out of this world, literally, and they missed it. All right, let's jump in. John six twenty two. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here's a map of Israel. At the time, I realize you really can't see this. If you flip to the back of your Bible, maybe you have one. If you have a phone Bible, I don't really know where you find maps, but... I've put it up there for you to look at. This is the ministry area where Jesus ministered. This was the time of Jesus at the very top, Caesarea Philippi. That's probably the furthest north that he ministered. All the way down at the bottom is Jerusalem and Bethlehem in that area there. So that's Judea. That's Samaria right there in the middle. So he went through, you remember he went through and talked to the Samaritan woman. He went through the area of Samaria. Well, this is up in the Sea of Galilee, which is the little... Oh, there we go. Um, Sea of Galilee right there. The two cities we're talking about, Tiberias and Capernaum. This is where Jesus would have walked on water in John six fifteen to 21. So that's, that's the story we're hearing. That's the area where we're hearing. Um, and apparently after this miraculous feeding, it was evening is what we learned in, through the text. They had probably gone to some of the surrounding towns for the night. And they woke up. And what was on their mind? Bread. They wanted more bread. So verse 25, they were looking for Jesus. They said, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them. Now notice he said, when did you come here? You know, it's like one of those questions when you go to a party and you're just trying to make small talk. And so when did you get here? Like, you don't really care the answer. And Jesus doesn't either. He goes, verse 26 or 25. They said, Rabbi, when did you get here? He didn't answer him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, so far through the book of John, people are following Jesus because they see these signs. He's performing these signs, these miracles. It's interesting. It's intriguing. People are getting healed. But now he says, look, you don't care about the signs. You're here because you got food in your belly. It's the only reason you're here. You got food in your belly. Yesterday, Jesus miraculously made bread appear to an arena. There wasn't really an arena, but an arena full of people. And today, they're not the least bit curious how or why. They don't want to know more. They're not trying to understand the situation. They're not there to find out who Jesus is. The only reason they're there is to eat bread. It's the only reason they're back. And they're so focused on, here's the sad part. They're so focused on the bread that not only did they miss the miracle, they missed Jesus. And that's, that's really, really important. Jesus says, you know, when you look at Jesus and why he did these miracles, he did it so people would believe. He did it so people would see not just the sign that happened, but they then would look to Jesus and say, wow, you must come from God. You are God. Like that's, that wasn't the sign. It wasn't what they did. It was the fact that he wanted them to see who he was. All right, one commentator said it like this. They said, instead of seeing in the bread a sign... They saw in the sign only the bread. Instead of seeing in the bread a sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. It's kind of, you know, when you first read it, you're like, is that, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's such a great statement. Um, And that idea sets the tone for the rest of the passage. Here's a group of people who are following Jesus, not because they love Jesus. He's not their focus. 
They're just following Jesus because. Okay, you know people like that? Maybe you used to be like that. Maybe you're currently in a situation where you are like that. You know, maybe they're following him to get something from him. Maybe they're hoping to get rich. Maybe they're hoping to get healed. Maybe it's just the right thing to do. They've always gone to church on Sundays. They've always done this. They really wouldn't know any other life. So they're just following Jesus. But at the end of the day, push comes to shove. It's not really about Jesus. It's about them. Okay, some good feelings here, some things to live by there. But at the end of the day, here's the deal. Jesus wants you and me to pursue him and him alone. He's the one who satisfies. He's the one who brings peace. His spirit is the one that brings comfort. Not comfort food. We have this category of food called comfort food. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Okay, it's not riches, it's not drink that brings you peace and joy. It's him and him alone. All right, verse 27, Jesus looks at the crowd and says, stop chasing these things. Stop chasing these other desires. Stop chasing these things to put in your belly. He says, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. They're like, okay, tell us what to do. We're okay with whatever you want us, but just tell us what to do. We just need a bunch of things to do, a list of things to do, and we'll do them. And Jesus said, look, it's not about doing, right? He said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let me say that again. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about miracles. Don't worry about signs. Your work and my work is to believe. That's our work. Our work is to pursue Christ, to believe in him, to have faith in him, to believe he is who he says he is, and everything else comes as an overflow of that. Our work is to pursue him, and they don't understand it. Verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They need more evidence. They need more proof. They say, what work do you perform? And then they bring up something from the past, something from the Old Testament. They said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you imagine what's going through Jesus' mind? He's having this dialogue with this crowd. He's going back and forth, and he's trying to explain to them, look, you need me. I'm, I'm your focus. And they're going back and forth, and they're like, well, we need more signs. We need to show us more things. Verse 32, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And he says, I am this bread. Verse 35, and this is the key verse for the whole passage. It says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so here's what he's saying. Everybody stop and focus. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. He says, everything else in this life will leave you hungry. Everything else in this life will leave you hungry. Everything else in this life will leave you dissatisfied, ultimately. Just, you'll, you'll be just wanting a little bit more of whatever it is. It's never quite enough. And you talk, when you talk to people who have massive amounts of wealth, like Rockefeller and some of those, I like those old biographies, and you say, how much is enough? And they say, just a little bit more. That's always the answer. It's like this treadmill, right? Jesus says, I am the nourishment you need in life. 
I'm the hole in your heart. I'm the one that can fill it. He says, I am the desire that you can't quite wrap your mind around. It's me. And it's such a profound statement for a couple reasons. One, it's the first of seven different times in the book of John where Jesus is going to use this phrase, I am. Okay, this is I am the bread of life. And for you theology, theology nerds, this is the, this is the name. All right? Jesus, or God's called a lot of different names in the Old Testament, but this is like the name of God in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Y'all remember that story? Appears to Moses in a burning bush. And basically he wants them to go and deliver the Israelites. They're in slavery in Egypt. And he appears to them in a burning bush and says, Go deliver my people from Egypt. The Israelites from Egypt. And Moses says, Who should I say sent me? Like clearly they're going to want to know who I am and where I came from and what I, what I represent. So who am I going to say sent me? Exodus 3.13 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. So back in Capernaum, John 6, these people would have heard this and they would have been like, he just said, I, like, he just called himself, I, like, he, they, they would have been trying to wrap their mind around it. They're getting kind of riled up. You know, they would have been getting kind of frustrated. And Je- what, he, what he does is Jesus takes this title of the I am, and he applies a metaphor to the back of it. So, I am the bread of life. And he's explaining something to the people of his nature. He's explaining something to the people of who he is, how he cares for people, how he loves people, how he takes care of people, how he sustains them. So I am the bread of life. And as we go through John, you're going to see other, other times where he does this. He's going to say, I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. We'll study these through the book of John. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to show them, I'm not a prophet. All right? I'm not a prophet. I'm not Moses. I'm not Jacob. I'm not David. I'm not Isaiah. I'm not Jeremiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not even Abraham. All right? In a few chapters, he's going to say something that's just going to floor them. And he's going to say, um, John 8, 56, two chapters from now, he's going to say, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And listen to what Jesus says to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that just, I mean, that would have just taken them off the cliff. That would have, I mean, what are you saying? Before Abraham was, I am? I mean, Abraham's like everything about their faith between Abraham and Moses. It's like those were the, the godfathers of their faith. And here's what he's doing. He's telling the crowd, me and God were one. I came down from heaven. All right, and understand how monumental this would have been for those who are listening. And listen to how many times he says it throughout this passage. We're going to pick off a couple verses. All right, look at the phrase, verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you what? The true bread, where? From heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven. 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Verse 50. This is not, this is the bread that what? Comes down from heaven so that many may eat of it and not die. You getting the drift here? You seeing what he's saying? Verse 51. I am the living bread that what? Came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's repeated again and again and again. If you're not careful, you can read the whole passage. As Kelsey was reading the passage, I'd be shocked if it was easy to pick up on how many times they used the phrase, came down from heaven, came down from heaven, came down from heaven. And it, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not a created being. I came down from heaven. You can never, ever reduce Jesus to a created being. You can't do that. You can't reduce him to a created being. Yeah, he's born in a manger, but he was born through the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life and he hung on a cross. Okay, the God of the universe came down out of heaven to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin so we could spend eternity with him. All right, the other thing I love about this passage is that he uses this metaphor of bread. And I realize I got a bread problem. We already established that. But I love the fact that he talks about bread. All right, John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, which is this substance like bread, in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Now, bread has this long history throughout the Bible, but it becomes kind of of utmost importance and significance once you get to Exodus. So if you recall, we already talked about it a little bit. In Exodus, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and God sent these plagues to show the Egyptians basically who he was and to deliver the Israelites. Moses comes on the scene, and right before the last final plague, which was the killing of the firstborn son, God implements these feasts. Everybody remember the feasts? Half, when I said the word feast, half of you thought of your lunch or you zoned out and thought of something else. All right, stay with me. All right, he talks about these feasts. And the first feast he implements is called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Very first one. This was actually before Passover. So when they're leaving Egypt, everybody thinks Passover. What they don't realize is the first one that was actually implemented was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And unleavened means without yeast. Okay, yeast in the Bible is used, it's, it's always synonymous with sin, because it's like pride, it puffs up, right? You get a piece of bread, you put yeast in it, it puffs it up. It's kind of like this picture of sin. And that's where the imagery comes from. So during the feast, they would cook their bread without yeast. And the crazy thing is, based on how... I brought some with me. These are real Jewish matzo crackers that you can get for um, if you were doing Passover or something like that. But this is how it would look, all right? They would cook it, and because they didn't cook it with... They would cook it on the fire, and because it didn't have yeast, it would stay flat like this. And it would have these these burn marks or these bruises or these stripes all down the side. And then when they would flip it, they would flip it with something that had like, you know, holes in it to try to grab it and flip it. And so inside of it, you see all these little punctures inside the, 
you know, maybe you know, there's no there's no light here, but you see all these little punctures inside. So it's got all these little leered holes, piercings, whatever you want to call it, inside of it. And this is what it would have looked like. These are literally, this is what they would have eaten during the feast or something like this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it would have lasted seven days, and then they would have gone to Passover. And the goal during unleavened bread is you would remove all the yeast from your house. You literally would go through and no yeast in my whole house. You would take it all, put it in this container, and you would take it to the priest, and the priest would put it in the fire. And that was almost preparation. You were removing the yeast from your house, removing the sin from your house, you know, figuratively. And you would take it, it would be burned away, and then you would celebrate Passover. And at Passover, you would take a lamb. Sounds disgusting. It is what it is. Every family would have a lamb, and you'd take it to the priest, and the priest would cut the lamb's throat, and the blood would be shed. And as disgusting as that sounds, I mean, it's foreshadowing of Jesus. You remember from John 1, John's baptizing people, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Passover is doing. All right, then after that, stay with me. Then after that, after the plagues, they leave Egypt. They go out, the Red Sea parts. They walk through the Red Sea, and they get out in the wilderness for 40 years. And what do they eat? They eat manna which is bread. That's kind of the picture. It's this bread-like substance. And it would rain down from heaven. And that's why in John 6, you're getting this picture from the Jews who are saying, well, look, our, our forefathers ate manna. What are you going to do for us? Like, what, what kind of sign are you going to show us? You're going to make it rain down from heaven? You're going to make manna, bread, come down from heaven? And that's the picture Jesus is trying to show them. All right, so then you have, you know, this bread. And what would happen is you go out and collect this manna as an Israelite. And if you collected too much, it would rot. Literally, they, at the beginning, they would collect too much. and They'd try to keep it for the next day because they wanted to make sure they had food. And they'd wake up and it would have worms in it and it would have rotted. You could only collect enough bread for that day. It was literally like it was your daily bread. All right? and they, then they built the tabernacle and they built the temple where God would dwell with them. And I brought a picture of this. I don't know if you can see it, but I can see it. Um, here's the temple. The back of your Bible map, same thing. They usually have a picture of the temple. So if you go inside the temple, see where the priest is in the purple? I know you can't see him, but there's a little blob that's purple or blue. Behind him is a golden table. And inside the temple, there would be this table, and it was called the bread of presence. And they would always have this bread sitting on the table. And then you'd go further into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, which is that, that furthest room in there. And what was in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And three things were in the Ark of the Covenant. It was Aaron's rod. It was the Ten Commandments. And it was a little jar of bread or manna. And that's what sat inside the Ark of the Covenant. So here's why I say all that. The Jews knew bread. The Jews, year in and year out, they would celebrate these feasts. They would celebrate unleavened bread. They would celebrate Passover, which had to do with the breaking of bread. And then the prophets started painting this picture of the Messiah. So you have like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 53, Isaiah's writing about, you know, Isaiah wrote all over about the coming Messiah. And he wrote something like, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we will be healed. All right. We hear about a lamb led to the slaughter. And then the Messiah comes on the scene and is born in a town called what? Bethlehem. Anybody remember what Bethlehem stands for? The Hebrew word Bethlehem. If you look it up, what it means is house of bread. That's what it means. House of bread. And there's this imagery that continues. And then right, Jesus talks about, you know, if a, if a wheat or a kernel falls to the ground, if it dies. But he uses the imagery of bread all the way through his teaching. And then you get to Matthew 26, which is one of the last things he does before he goes to the cross. He shares a meal with his disciples. 
In Matthew 26, verse 17, here's what he says. It says, now on the first day of what? Unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take eat. This is my body. So he would have taken something very similar to this. This is something they would have used near Passover, something very similar to this. And he would have broken it just like this and would have handed it to his disciples. And they would have, I don't know that they would have understood the imagery. I don't know they would have looked at this bread and seen the stripes in it, seen the bruisings in it. They would have seen the little holes inside of it. But the imagery can't be overlooked. That he takes this and hands it to his disciples and breaks it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And when you take communion, that's what you're remembering. You're remembering the fact that Jesus' body was broken for you and it was broken for me. On that cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. In verse 27, it says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So you have manna, you've got the bread of presence, you've got the last supper, you've got the five loaves, and there's all, it's all about a deeper picture. It's all pointing you to something. God is at work and he's nourishing us as believers with true food from heaven. Do you see the picture? Do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's saying to these people in John 6? It's powerful, isn't it? When you understand the imagery of bread all through the Old Testament. So, you know, as, as we... What can we learn from this? What can you learn from a passage like John 6? You know, what, what would, when Jesus tells his followers to feed on him, like, what, what do we do with that? All right, well, I think the first thing that Jesus expects from us is he expects people to truly follow him. And I, I, I underlined the word truly, like I would... Put it in air quotes. Do whatever you got to do it. He expects people to truly follow him. Verse 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me. And abide is that picture of you're, you're consuming him daily. You're abiding in Christ. And he says, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus had tens of thousands of people who followed him through the countryside. You see it over and over, the crowds. He always talked about the crowds. The crowds are following him, but most of them wanted something from him. They didn't want a relationship with him. Jesus doesn't just want us to add a little Jesus to our lives. That, that's not the equation. The equation is not, hey, why don't you add a little sprinkle and a little Jesus? Okay, he wants every facet of our lives to be about him. And what's crazy is we live in a society where, honestly, it's pretty easy to add just a little Jesus in. Would you agree? I mean, it's pretty easy just to add a little Jesus. I'm going to do my own thing Monday through Saturday. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, get me a little Jesus. And, you know, it's, we can do that in our culture, but historically, if you look through time, that wasn't an option. 
That was a waste of time. All right, the early church, if you explain to them the idea of maybe a Sunday Christian or I just want a little bit of Jesus over here, they looked at it like, like you were crazy. What? What, do you, what does that look like? Because they had no choice but to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. I was in India a few years ago near in northern India, near Pakistan and Nepal, where India kind of comes up like this. We were up there doing some teaching. And it was a pretty persecuted area. I mean, we had, where we were, we were kind of off in a, an area where kind of like a compound. We were kind of off the beaten path, so we weren't too worried about anything happening to us. Um, but what happened, there was three people there who were going to get baptized during our time. They, wanted, they professed faith in Christ, wanted to get baptized. And so we walked down to this lake to do the baptisms. There was a lake kind of maybe a half mile away. And as we're walking down to the lake, they're, they're, I didn't know the words. They were singing in Hindi, but I could pick up the tune. And they were singing that song that maybe you sang over the years, or maybe it's an invitation song you hear. And it's, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Y'all know the song? I'm not going to sing it. So, um, but the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And it took me probably two or three verses before I could put the tune together, because again, they were singing in Hindi. And then it hit me. You know, I sang that song most of my life, in and out, in different churches. And I don't know if they under, understood the magnitude of those words about no turning back, no turning back. Here's people in a northern persecuted area of India who are singing this song And this is why they're singing it. It's because they want to be reminded of the fact that when they commit their lives to Christ, they very well could lose family members. They very well could lose friends. Everything they've known about their life could change. And it's it's almost like this reminder of this is the right way. This is my true nourishment as a believer, as a follower of Christ. And I'm not turning back. I'm not going back to anything else. And, you know, you think about that. And why, why would Jesus say things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Like, it sounds so weird. But here's the deal. Jesus knew there would be trials. Jesus knew there would be persecution. He knew there would be tribulation. If you fast forward to the book of Acts in the early church, you know, the Roman times and the Colosseum and all that, if you weren't feeding on Jesus daily, you were out. You wanted nothing to do with it. If you were just kind of like, there was no Sunday Christians in the, in the Roman Catholic, you know, in that, not the Catholic, with the Roman times, you know, the empire where they'd come in the Colosseum. You know, there, there was a, I'm a true follower of Christ. And it's total commitment. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, everything I need to sustain me, everything you needed to sustain you is found in me. Everything I need to spend eternity in heaven is found in Jesus. It's his death on the cross and his blood that was shed that pays the penalty for our sins. And it's his daily bread, that daily eating of him and his sustenance that sustains me on this earth. And Jesus knows, you know, here's the deal. A lot of people are attracted to Jesus. A lot of people are attracted to Jesus. On the surface, they like the idea. Maybe you get to a certain age, you got kids. It's like, I want my kids to be raised in church. You know what I mean? There's, there's this idea where a little bit of Jesus is a good thing. But Jesus looks at them, verse 60, he says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning 
who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And after this, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus knew that not everyone would follow him. He knew that not everyone would follow him. Some would hear the words that he says and they would say, man, that's tough. That's too hard to believe. I don't think Jesus can sustain me like that. And they would walk away. And that's true even today. Some of you right now, you're hearing the words that are coming out of your mouth. You're watching the scripture that's being read and you're having this battle in your head. This spiritual battle. You hear the message and just not quite buying it. Not quite sure that's what you want. All right, you mean to tell me that Jesus is enough if I lose my job? Like, you mean to tell me he's enough when I get out of a relationship and I'm lonely? Or I don't have a relationship and I'm lonely? You mean to tell me when I'm broke, he's enough? Like, you, you mean to tell me Jesus is going to be good enough for me when I lose a loved one? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And most of the people in this room, I've heard your testimonies and I've heard your walk with Christ. And I could bring person after person after person up here and hand them the microphone and they could tell story after story after story where they had massive heartache and trials and tribulations and persecution in their lives and Jesus was enough. Happens time and time again, all right? He shed his blood. His body was broken on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when we confess him as Lord of our life, we're changed. And you grow on him and you feed on him and your priorities change and the things that used to be of interest to you kind of fade into the background. I'm no longer struggling after this or striving after this or striving after this. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The fight of faith is a fight to feast on all that God is for us in Christ. And what we hunger for most, we worship. Think about that last part. What we hunger for most, we worship. What do you hunger for? What drives you day in and day out? What consumes your mind? What consumes your thoughts? Is it Jesus in the pursuit of him? And I'm I'm not saying this is that you need to be perfect in this. Trust me. If if you had my thoughts up here on this screen, there's a screen behind us, my thoughts were up there. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not daily, but it's this pursuit, this striving after him, this desire to feed on him and worship on him. All right, is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it maybe money or career or lust or pleasures or fame or even food? As odd as that seems, food can be so can distract us it can be so consuming all right you ever you ever seen the well i mean think about fasting in scripture it's such an important discipline because it takes your eyes off of food that thing that satisfies and it puts them on jesus all right when jesus was baptized you see this picture in scripture where he's baptized and he goes in the water and he comes out of the water and it says and the spirit descended on him like a dove remember that and then what's the first thing the holy spirit does What's the first thing he directs him to do? He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he fasts. 
a lot of imagery there between the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years and Jesus there for 40 days. And he's there and he's fasting and he's feasting on God. That is his sustenance. And then if you go further, what's the first thing? Devil starts, comes in at the very end and the devil tempts him. And what's, what's one of the first things he does? He keeps giving imagery back to the Israelites. And he goes, you can't live on bread alone. Like the Satan's trying to turn this, go turn this rock into a piece of bread. And he goes, you can't live on bread alone. That's one of the things that Jesus says. And if you read that whole story, it's mind-blowing, but Jesus is fasting. And fasting is such a, it's so out of the ordinary these days, but it's such a great way to refocus your gaze on Jesus. Okay, then the passage wraps up, verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So you hear more about Judas in the weeks to come as we kind of walk through the book of John. Um, But Judas was this guy who at the very end, he betrayed Jesus. He traded him. They wanted to know who he was, who Jesus was, and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was with Jesus day in, day out. He saw his ministry. He saw what he did. He saw the miracles he did. He saw the works he did. And yet, the ambition of money, the ambition of silver was too strong. The fact that he wanted that was too strong. And what's sad about the story, if you read it, in Matthew 27, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he's sitting here and he's holding this bag of silver. And he's like, what did I do? What did I trade for this silver? And it says, if you keep reading on, he throws the silver into the temple, onto the floor, and he runs out and eventually he kills himself. Some people in this world are going to get to the end of their lives and have this moment where they realize what they've done. Just like Judas. Have this moment where they realize you're holding this bag of silver, you're holding this bag of gold, you're holding this career, you're holding this thing that you strived after your entire life, this thing that consumed your mind, consumed your thoughts, and you feasted on it instead of feasted on Jesus, and you're going to have this moment of realization. Maybe it's a, a last minute, dying breath, hospital room, whatever it is. You have this moment of realization. I traded Jesus for this career. I traded Jesus for this, or I traded Jesus for that, or I traded Jesus for this guy or this girl who really didn't want anything to do with him, and it completely changed the focus of my life. I traded Jesus for these pursuits or these desires, and in the end, I'm finally realizing, just like Judas, that they don't satisfy. These things that I thought were going to satisfy me, these things I thought were going to make me happy, just like Judas in those 30 pieces of silver, you realize, I made a mistake. That's, that's not what this life is about. So as we close, where do, where do we go from here? Well, here's the thing. If you're, you would consider yourself a follower of Christ, if you're in this room and you're like, yep, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, and today's a good day. Today is an opportunity in your life to refocus your gaze, to refocus your thoughts, your mind, your pursuits, your desires on him. Feed off his word, spend time with him, praise him, worship him, have communion with him. All right? do you, I mean, think about, 
Do you remember when he first came into your life? Do you remember when he awakened your soul, how excited you were? Do you remember those first few months just on this joyous high? Do you remember the excitement you had at first? Do you remember the joy of your newfound faith? John, who writes this book, also writes to the church, or he writes the book of Revelation. It's always bad when I go off notes, but he, uh, he writes to this church in Revelation. He write, he's really writing to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says. He goes, you forgot your first love. When he writes this letter to them in Revelation 2, I think it is, he says, you forgot your first love. Repent. Return. Return back to your first love. Psalm fifty-one, twelve says, restore to me the joy of of your salvation. This is David after he had this affair with Bathsheba and he's writing this psalm of repentance. Psalm 51 and he says in 51.12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Use today as a day to refocus your thoughts, your mind, your affections on Christ. If you're sitting here and you're not a follower of Christ and you're like I just don't know. I'm not quite sure. Like the things you've been saying, they're making sense and I get them and you know, I know I'm here for a reason and God is pursuing me and I know there's this hole, this void and I just can't seem to fill it. Repent. Use today as a day to just say, Lord, it's yours. My life is yours. I'm going to stop feeding off the world. I'm going to stop feeding off pleasures. I'm going to stop feeding off this stuff and I'm going to start feeding on you. Don't beat yourself up. Look to Jesus as your saving grace. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Matthew 11, which is one of my favorite verses in Scripture, says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Here's the deal. Your story's not over. Your story's just beginning. And that's the beauty of today. That's the beauty of a day like today. This is the first day of the rest of your life. Use it wisely. Okay, there's this story in, coming it's from World War II. And there was, you know, as you know, there was bombings all over the place, all over Europe. Most of Europe was decimated, and a lot of the bombings, at least certain cities were. And there's a story that came out of these thousands of children who were orphaned and left to starve during World War II. And after the horrors of war and many, all the things that they had seen, they would take them and send them to refugee camps where they would get food and they would get shelter. And unfortunately, you know, even with all the food and all the shelter and all the great care they were getting, they'd experienced so much loss and so much abandonment that for so many of those kids, they couldn't sleep through the night. And what they would do is they would wake up in the middle of the night and they, you know, the workers would come the next day to the pantries and the food would be gone and they just they couldn't understand what was happening. And, and they'd go to the kids' rooms, they would find food under the beds, they would find food in the closets, they would find food just hidden in the random places and they would tell them, look, this food is here, the war is over, you have, uh, we're going to provide you with care and comfort and you know, we're going we're gonna to give you what you need, we're going to give you sustenance. And these kids, they'd go to sleep the next day and the, pan- the workers would come in and the pantries would be empty again and they'd go and find it under the kids' beds and in the closets and day after day they would just, they, they didn't have the assurance that they would be cared for. So one of the workers came up with this idea and they said, why don't we just give them a loaf of bread every night? When they go to bed, Let's give them a loaf of bread. Just let them hold it as they go to sleep and see if that changes anything. 
And what happened is the kids would wake up and the next, in the middle of the night sometimes or the next morning they would have see this loaf of bread. And when they used to run out to get food, they would be like, oh, like I have this loaf of bread. And amazingly, they would sleep through the night. And so every night they would give these kids a loaf of bread and night after night after night they would be reassured, okay, this, I'm fine, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. If they woke up frightened, they'd just be like, okay, I ate today. I'm going to eat again tomorrow. Have you eaten at the feet of Jesus lately? What are you, what are you holding on to every day, every night that's not Christ? Let, let him be your sustenance. Let him be your food. Let him be your bread. Hold on to him for everything you need in this life. We're going to wrap up with a verse. Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We love you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a passage like John chapter 6, which just talks so much about bread, talks so much about who you are and what you did and that you came down from heaven to save us. Lord, we can't understand the magnitude of that, but we thank you for that. Lord, we love you for who you are. Pray that when we leave here today, we would just have a better appreciation, a better focus, a better understanding of who you are, and we would glorify you in everything we do. In your name, amen.